Welcome to the Assemblage Wine Podcast. On today's episode, I have the pleasure of talking to Master Sommelier, Jim Boob. Jim is currently a board member and treasurer of Second City Sommelier's Tasting Group in Chicago, as well as the National Wine Director for the Hog Salt Restaurant Group. Formerly the Director of Education for Heritage Wine Cellars in Illinois, Jim focuses heavy on mentorship in the Chicago wine community when not cooking or trying to make the perfect cantalet. Over his career, Jim has worked the restaurant floor and has rose to top of management at the third largest wholesaler in Illinois. Most recently, he worked the 2020 Harvest at Argyle Winery and was the general manager at Mercantile Restaurant in Denver, Colorado. Jim also represents the Drink Perfector, and you may have seen him in a Wine Enthusiast magazine. Jim, how are you today? I'm excellent. How are you doing today, Adam? Good. I'm, uh, we had some technical difficulties earlier, but I'm glad uh, things seem to be working better now. Um, and yeah. I'm, I'm excited to talk with you. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, and we have kind of a, an interesting, our paths have crossed in the past, but not, I, I feel like ever, all signs have pointed to us doing this podcast because I took my intro in Chicago and you were one of the master sommeliers at that, um, that uh, class. Um, mm -hmm. And then, you know, we both have kind of a mutual friend in Dan with the Drink Perfector and we have other mutual friends. So it just kind of seems uh, like a really cool opportunity to do this podcast yeah yeah amen it's great chatting with you so um if you would walk us through your wine journey um and then your also your time with the court of master sommeliers and how you've rose to the top and become a master sommelier yeah for sure um so I really started kind of like initially getting into wine in college and it honestly it started as just kind of the novelty of showing up at a house party with a big gaudy jug of Carlo Rossi wine instead of a case of beer, or, you know, bottle of bottle of hard liquor. It was just kind of, uh, you know, like let's drink wine instead tonight. And yeah, there were a few, few moments with that very, very inexpensive wine that I was like, huh, this is actually not, you know, not altogether unpleasant and, uh, kind of spiraled out from there was working at a, um, a very small kind of like dive bar in college. And, uh, I was the only employee on staff at any at any given time, and you know we end up doing a lot of business. And uh, I covered for the the owner who was the other bartender at the time. Uh, one shift, he's like, "Hey, look, I got something coming up. Can you step in?" I said, "Sure," and gifted me a bottle of Columbia Crest uh, Cabernet, which was you know by far the most expensive bottle of wine that you know I had had at the time, and cracked it with uh, some friends. I was like, "Wow, there's this is like way better than the jug wine we've been drinking." and uh, and then that's where the spending problem kind of began. So it was, you know, uh, saving up and, you know, going to going to like the grocery store and, you know, kind of buying wine. I remember tasting like Rancho Zabaco, Dancing Bull Zinfandel back in the day and just being blown away. It was like so good. And um, yeah, you know, just kind of was a casual uh, fan of, of wine with, uh, you know, the extra, the extra tips that I was making along the way and uh, graduated college and uh, moved back to Chicago where started working at um, Fogo de Chão, a Brazilian steakhouse chain. I think at the time it was the third one in the U.S., but they were the first to bring kind of all-you-can-eat steak to Chicago. And you can imagine how 
big of a deal that was. Uh, it was an incredibly busy restaurant. I believe it was um, the top uh, for a single unit uh, standalone restaurant. I think it was one of the years I was there. It was like the fourth highest grossing restaurant in the United States. So we were doing 600 covers during the week and, you know, 11 to 1200 on the weekend. And this was kind of the height of the major like pharmaceutical party, crazy spend type of uh, era. So we would have, you know, hundred tops that would drink, you know, Opus one and just crazy stuff. But uh, we didn't have a sommelier at the time. And, you know, with the menu kind of set as it was, you know, there wasn't much, um, you know, the, the menu is a really pretty quick study, you know, salad bar, and then you have your list of meats in front of you, flip over your card and enjoy. And, uh, you know, the, the, the job really became your ability to kind of sell, sell beverage. So, um, you know, me and some friends ended up getting together, you know, pooling our tips and we're like, all right, we need to learn about these wines on our wine list. Cause there wasn't, um, you know, robust wine training, uh, from management at that point. And like, we were too busy. Everybody was working crazy hours. Um, so, you know, we ended up throwing some money together we bought a half bottle of Lafitte and, you know, some Marcus de Cosseris Grand Reserva and, you know, hung out together and kind of threw a party. And it was, you know, just one of those things it was like, wow, like this is incredible. And like, totally understand why, you know, if you have the means you would want to drink first growth Bordeaux. Um, yeah, from there, you know, just kept, you know, reading about wine, studying it. It was, you know, definitely a point of pride to be able to stand out on staff as, you know, having like lots of three digit wine on your tables and management noticed. And uh, yeah, just got, you know, really passionate about, you know, selling and talking about wine to, to the guests. And I would see the sales reps come through and, you know, bag of wine. I was like that, you know, that seems like a pretty good way to live. That seems like a uh, fun kind of lifestyle, you know, bouncing from one restaurant to another and shooting the breeze and, you know, pouring wine, trying to get a glass pour. And, uh, you know, as somebody who was spending an inordinate amount of his uh, funds on wine, I was like, well, you know, I'd probably save a lot of money, you know, being one tier closer to the source. So started bugging our sales reps and, uh, you know, ended up getting a interview with Heritage Wine Cellars. Um, my old boss, Danny, I just harassed him incessantly until he hired me. I sent him cards in the mail and stuff and uh, figured for a sales role, couldn't be too too persuasive so or too you know on top of uh the you know the interviewing and courting process so uh was at heritage for 12 and a half years uh ran multiple sales territory started in the south suburbs western suburbs uh and then was kind of downtown and ended up becoming sort of like key accounts downtown for on-premise and uh the education director and the whole time i was there you know i was wholesale can be uh you know, especially like a, like a very high quality, like results oriented wholesaler, like heritage, you know, it's, uh, it can, it can sometimes, you can sometimes forget about the actual product you're selling. It becomes about, you know, really driving numbers. And I learned a lot about, you know, the business, but about halfway through my time there, I was like, I need to reinvest in, in myself here. This has obviously become a career at this point. And, uh, you know, I, seen the court kind of around and I had friends who had start started going through the program and um, yeah, started, uh, you know, just started kind of in earnest studying wine again and, um, you know, took my intro and then flew to New York later that year to take the certified and um, passed both of those and in 
pretty short order. And then, uh, yeah, to, you know, it was advised to me that like, you definitely need to take some time, you know, to get to that advanced level. And yeah, you know, it, it started as, um, quite honestly, as, as a, um, someone who is a downtown on-premise, uh, person an ability to kind of like take off my salesman hat and study alongside with a lot of my, you know, peers and, you know, have that level of, um, kind of bond and camaraderie outside of me just showing up and asking for your business. So, um, yeah, started, started, uh, you know, studying for the advanced and, uh, you know, uh, went to, um, Florida and passed the advanced and a lot of the people that I met there, this was back before it was split into the course and then the exam, it was all kind of, you know, bunched together. So you did this huge review and it was like a day and a half of review and you get to really stress yourself out. Like as they go through the world of wine that you're like, Oh, I forgot Portugal makes wine. Oh my God. Oh, New Zealand. And you know, and then you would just immediately, you take a break and then you go take the exam. So, um, I was uh, fortunate to be successful there and, uh, yeah. And then it was onto the, onto the MS exam and, um, had the good fortune of, uh, passing theory on my, my first go, uh, at masters and, uh, yeah. And then was unsuccessful two years in a row in both tasting and service, uh, service was the, the, the one that I was really kind of, uh, least, least sure I had the, the skills to pass, uh, tasting, I was tasting uh, once a week regularly with our, our tasting group at that time. And every time I didn't pass that component, I was really upset, but uh, service was service was the one that, you know, I, I hadn't been working like super regularly on the floor. I had uh, restaurant tour friends who were very generous to let me stage Michael Nahabedian. I was at Maple and Ash for a while and Lena Maude and, you know, just went where I could get on the floor and, and, and help out. Um, but yeah, then ultimately I got some great advice, um, you know, heading into heading into service because I was, you know, I think I was um, a bit kind of uh, nervous and uh, a bit uptight table side during service. And, um, uh, you know, I got the advice to just kind of, you know, let it go and take it easy and, you know trust in yourself that you, that you know enough to pass the exam, but just don't be weird table side. You know, and I, I found myself, I found myself sometimes, you know, just watching myself tank the exam as, you know, I just kind of like lost composure. And so like, it's strange too, because you would never behave that way with an actual guest, right? Like, and being able to, I, at least for me, uh, kind of, you know, just pretend in, in a very robust way that these are just guests at a table and react accordingly, uh, I think was really um, uh, the advice I needed to pass that portion of the exam. So yeah, it was, um, yeah, very, very difficult. Uh, I was honestly incredulous uh, when uh, I was told that I passed the exam. I actually think I said, oh, which part? <laughs> because I hadn't expected success really. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, obviously, you know, very important point in my life and professional career. And, um, you know, it, it just became very clear to me at that point that it wasn't really my success. It was the success of our, our tasting group and everyone that, you know, the community that had really helped help me out uh, grow as a professional. So um, just wanted to, you know, continue to 
pay it forward to, you know, other sommeliers and, and wine professionals as, as much as I could, because I just felt, you know, so fortunate and uh, frankly lucky to have passed that exam. It's uh, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a huge honor. I've uh, I've passed my intro and then I was supposed to take my certified in 2020 and then everything happened with, uh, with COVID and everything like that. So I'm still hoping to take my certified uh, in 2021, but Great. Um, I don't, you know, with, with dates and things like that, I'm hoping it happens, but it might not be until next year, but sure. um, just studying for that alongside with working full time and consulting and all that kind of stuff. It's uh, there's not enough hours in the day, which I'm sure you, I'm sure you know very well. No doubt um, about it. And yeah, I just kind of wanted to touch on like, I'm kind of at the stage of my career, you know, that you spoke upon when you were just kind of getting into wine and spending all your money on wine. I'm that's me right now. Um, I it's become an addiction that I can't not buy wine. I don't even drink that much wine. It's just, I love buying and purchasing and, uh, you know, I've, I've recently cut myself off just to make sure that I can stop buying. Um, because I told myself last week I was done. And then I found a bottle of, uh, 1979 GH mom champagne. Uh, oh, man. Cool. That, that I couldn't not, I mean, the, the, the price was unreal. Um, so I'm actually opening up that with, with some friends today. Um, so I'm excited to try it and I'm hoping it's, it's still good. Um, it'll be the oldest champagne I've ever had. So I'm very I'm definitely cool. excited for it. Um, I know during your, your wine career, obviously with going to the court and, you know, you, you briefly mentioned, uh, to me about your love of educating and mentoring and inspiring other wine professionals. What's your favorite aspect about educating and mentoring um, young wine professionals? I mean, I think it's, you know, like watching kind of the light, like, like certain things click, like, especially, especially with tasting, you know, you know, inevitably we're tasting wines that are pretty similar next to each other. Um, in order to kind of parse those out. I mean, the whole, you know, Gruner Veltliner, Pinot Grigio, you know, Riesling or uh, Albarino next to each other, you know, and being able to be like, okay, like this is bitterness and moderate acid. And this is slight bitterness with moderate plus acid. And just kind of going back and forth and like watching people kind of get it. I remember having you know, that moment with Pinot Grigio, it was just like, I don't get it. Like I, I always miss the wine. I'm like, it doesn't smell or taste like anything. It's just kind of like lemony and bitter. And I'm like, I just don't get it. And then like, it finally, you know, I had that moment where like, well, if it doesn't smell like much, you can list off a number of grapes that you know that it isn't. Right. And I was like, Oh, I hadn't thought about it like that before. And, you know, it's like being able to kind of pass those, pass those experiences on and, you know, have people, um, you know, show up and like not miss grapes that they had historically struggled with from a tasting standpoint is always super cool. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a bit selfish too. I, you know, I always, when, when you're, when you're studying these things, you end up learning, you have, to, if, if you're going to teach it, you have to learn it. And if you're, you know, going back and forth on, you know, if you're in a theory study group as well, I've a lot of friends who have been doing that. Um, and, and quite honestly, I feel like I need to get back into it because after this year of sort of running around and not really having um, 
thought about wine in the, in the same way that I have, I feel as rusty as I ever have, but you know, when you get together with people and you drill theory, you end up learning as much. At, I mean, it's just the community drives everything. You end up filling out all of these different, um, you know, nooks and crannies of knowledge that you didn't even know that you didn't have. And uh, it just helps make everything a lot more sort of three-dimensional, I think. Awesome. Yeah, I, I definitely need to get more into uh, into studying. Just this past year has been so crazy with, you know, adjusting business plans and everything like that in the restaurant that, uh, you know, it's it sounds bad, but sometimes after working 14 hours, it's it's tough to come home and want to sit in front of books and read or be able to, you know, go in depth with tasting and stuff like that. Totally. Yeah. And I honestly, I, you know, when you, when you have a, a job and a career and it's important and other people are, are relying on, on your success as well, sometimes it can feel just very, very indulgent. And that was the one, like I, I loved, I enjoyed studying so much that it just, it felt really, kind of selfish and indulgent sometimes. And um, honestly, like one of the things that I ended up um, uh, doing that at least for me worked uh, from like a habit standpoint was just going to going to the gym and, you know, going on like a Stairmaster or an elliptical and I would just read for an hour, right? And you do that and it's kind of like two birds, one stone. And I don't know, for me, there's something about like that cardio aspect with, like the reading uh, with the knowledge thing that helped make it stick. I don't know if that's bro science or not, but it seemed to <laughs> seem to work for me. Um, but yeah, no, I know what you mean. It's uh, I don't know. And, and sometimes it can feel like arcane and you know, it's like, does any of this matter? And you, you know, there definitely are like, I, I think that's one of the interesting things about wine, right? Like I went to school for philosophy and, you know, it's just one of those, uh, uh, subjects like the more questions that you have answered for you, the more questions arise, and you can just sort of keep going down that rabbit hole. And um, you know that like you, you could you you'll never know everything, and you'll always meet people that know way more than you about certain things, and you know in some cases many things, and uh, that's why it's fun. Yeah, maybe I need to try the the working out and reading trick. Because uh, it's two things that I need to do more often, um, yeah. so I think that 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 could be the uh, the key to success for me. So I know that you're currently the national wine director for the Hog Salt Restaurant Group. Um, tell us a little about what that role entails and uh, what you do, like on a day to day basis or week to week, or just tell us about the job. Yeah, for sure. So. Um... It's uh yeah super super great to be back. This is a job that I um, really really loved, and uh, you know like a lot of people, I was furloughed from last March, so uh, it's amazing to be back. But um, kind of day to day, it's it's really pretty dynamic. Um, so I most of my purview ends up being um, in Illinois. We do have restaurants in New York and Las Vegas. Um, New York, I kind of help oversee the wine program there, but. Um, I work with a gentleman named John, John Fredericks, who's a um, super talented guy. And I, you know, I pretty much just kind of help him where needed. We sell a lot of really fancy four digit wine there. So kind of helping with auction purchases in, in New York. Um, 
but a lot, you know, a lot of days it's a combination of office work and then just kind of running around touching base with our individual beverage managers at their locations to see, um, you know, what they need. Uh, obviously, the supply chains have been very challenging as of late. So I've been spending a lot of time just, you know, trying to be nimble. Like literally a couple of days ago, I found out that our, you know, Chardonnay by the glass at our steakhouse had run out and, they thought it was going to be in on time. It wasn't there. Yeah, obviously, we need Chardonnay for the weekend. Uh, so, you know, getting in touch with other, you know, other vendors and getting that replaced and going in and doing staff training, making sure that, you know, our staff is aware of, um, you know, what's on the list. Uh, a lot of it is uh, staff training. I'm usually in our pre-shifts, uh, you know, a couple, couple times a week. And uh, then it's, vendor meetings uh, for a lot of it as well. We, we've got uh, some new restaurants opening up. So uh, it's important to kind of stay on top of uh, who's selling what, you know, what new vintages are tasting like and, uh, you know, designing designing these wine programs for, uh, for success. So that's kind of the day to day. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty great. It's uh, our restaurants have been opening a lot earlier than they have been. So been trying to get up earlier and just you know get into the space and work and be available for uh for our management teams and uh you know be around and available yesterday i had to go run to uh you know pick something up for our managers and i was happened to be in the neighborhood and they were just like hey if you're around can you grab this you know so i don't have to come in early and uh you know it's nice to it's nice to be back and be able to kind of offer offer to help in you know some of these small ways to our to our team, you know, as we kind of rebuild and reopen. Yeah. Yeah. And I know it's, it's been a crazy, I've seen it a lot in our restaurant is uh, just the constant shorts and, and outs and having to change Pinot Noirs and Prosecco's. And, you know, it's, it's been like a very interesting time, but I think that it's helped me and my team become better wine professionals and, and salespeople on the floor because you're constantly having to learn about new producers or learn about the, the different styles of wine um, and how they differ from what you had before. Um, you know, and, and without that, you know, sometimes it can get not a little stale, but it can get a little repetitive or, you know, every day you're selling the exact same wine. So, totally. uh, you know, being out, it's, I've, I'm trying to take it as it's not always a bad thing. It's just a new opportunity and a new opportunity to learn and grow and try something new that you might not have tried before. So it's, it's been a cool, sometimes frustrating, but a cool kind of shift in our beverage program. And I know around the world, it's, you know, it's all the same. So. Yeah, no doubt. I know with, um, and kind of, uh, one of those connections that I was talking about earlier with the drink perfecter, it's uh, like a crazy whirlwind of a story uh, about how I got in touch with Dan uh, with the drink perfecter. And, you know, ultimately with you too, as I had just subscribed to wine enthusiast magazine and I had gotten my first issue in November, or December, and I was flipping through and I stopped on the page. There's a, photo with you and you were using the drink perfecter and I I leaned over to now my fiance she was my girlfriend at, at the time and I said oh my god this 
you know, master sommelier. He was one of the, the gentlemen at uh, my intro exam. And I was like, oh, this is a really cool mechanism. And, you know, I just kind of kept flipping through and looking at all sorts of stuff. And then a couple weeks later, uh, Dan's agent actually reached out to me and said, hey, I've got a client and he's from your he's from Valparaiso, which is where I'm from. Um, and would love to be on your podcast. So I, you know, I ended up getting in touch with Dan and he had been into our restaurant a couple of times in the past and, uh, you know, our relationship kind of grew. And then, you know, I asked if I could have your information to, to get you on the podcast. So it's just been a kind of a crazy, uh, series of events, if you will. Um, so talk about, maybe talk about your experience with the drink perfecter and how your relationship with Dan and, and his wife has grown. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, Dan and I met uh, through actually an ex-girlfriend of mine uh, was very close with his wife and we ended up heading out to Valparaiso and hanging out a few times and they were just always like lovely company. And uh, when my ex and I split up, we kind of, kind of just like lost, lost touch. And uh, you know, um, my ex and I stayed friends and that was, uh, you know, pretty, pretty good amicable split up, but kept in touch and would hang out periodically. And she was like, Hey, um, Dan was asking for your contact info. Is it cool if I give it to him? And I was like, absolutely. Of course. So yeah, jumped on a call with Dan. He told me about the drink perfecter and it was like, Hey, you know, he's like, can I send you one, take a look at it? Let me, you know, give me some feedback on it. And, um, I was like, wow, this is like a really, really cool, you know, um, wine device. It was initially, uh, designed for kind of coffee and tea, but, um, I was like, you know, there's absolutely application for this for, for wine, you know? So the device, uh, I mean, if you, you know, if your listeners are listening, you could Google it. It's, uh, essentially it's a plastic housing with, uh, uh, copper, um, coil in it. And it just, uh, it will, quickly change the temperature of a beverage that you pour it through either warmer or colder. And, you know, for me, I was using it a lot, um, you know, for white wine right out of the fridge oftentimes is, is inappropriately cold for service temperature. So pouring it through the drink perfecter kind of brings it down a few degrees or up a few degrees and uh, just, you know, puts it closer in the zone. Um, and you can use it for red wine as well. You just fill it with ice water and, uh, you know, pour red wine through and it, it snaps it right to cellar temperature. It's, it's really pretty cool. Um, and you know, it's, it's great too, because it doesn't, um, change the flavor of the wine, like an aerator does. Uh, you know, I've, I'm a sucker for novelty. So I've, I bought a lot of these kind of, um, uh, kind of, you know, wine gadgets and generally speaking, I'm kind of skeptical of a lot of them, but, uh, this I thought was just a very simple, easy solution to, you know, in, in my opinion, a pretty, pretty quickly solvable, uh, well, what I didn't know was a quickly solvable problem and it's wine temperature. I'm a huge, uh, believer in, you know, enjoying wine at the appropriate temperature. And, you know, that temperature I think is, is, you know, personal as well, but this device really allows you to kind of quickly calibrate it without, you know, having to put your whole bottle in the fridge or the freezer and wait, and then, oh, it's too cold. It's, you know, just one, you know, one row through and it's cooler or warmer. And if you want to change the temperature again, you pour it just right through again. So, um, you know, pretty quick, elegant solution to, um, you know, to the 
wine service temperature issue. Uh, so yeah, I was really kind of excited to see it. And we talked about kind of doing a partnership. I was like, yeah, I can totally get behind this. So, um, yeah, it's been great. And those guys are awesome and lovely people. And, um, yeah, I hope they make uh, a lot of money because I think it's a really cool product. Yeah. And I have one and I, I really like using it for, um, you know, cause I know Dan is a huge like whiskey and bourbon drinker and, uh, I'm, I'm a big vintage rum, uh, like I'm a huge rum tiki oh, drink yeah. person, um, which surprises people because I like expensive wine, cheap beer and tiki drinks, which is kind of a weird. Sounds like a sommelier to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I love drinking like rum straight up and I've, I've noticed that pouring rum through it with a little bit of ice and water is really nice because it brings the temperature down and then you don't have to worry about watering it down or you know again you don't have to put the whole bottle in the fridge or the freezer and you know it's just kind of the the perfect all-purpose beverage chiller or warmer so it's kind of a cool um a cool gadget yeah Yeah. so jump kind of uh switching gears and just because i'm i'm always interested in finding out what people are super into drinking, um, right now, uh, what kind of wine styles, you know, whether it's grapes or, or methods of production or even just producers of wine, what, um, are you excited about in the wine world right now? Um, I, I've been really, really, uh, just over the moon with, uh, the quality coming out of Chianti Classico as of late. I think that is, you know, a, a part of the wine world that is still really um, kind of misunderstood and uh, frankly underappreciated for, for the quality, uh, especially if you can still find them. Some of the stuff coming out of the 2016 vintage, uh, it's just absolutely mind blowing the quality uh, of the, the top producers and, and what they sell for. I mean, you can get world-class, like very soulful, beautiful bottles of wine for $30, you know, retail. And there's not a lot of places in the world where you can get really top tier uh, benchmark producers from a great classic region. And uh, yeah, um, Chianti Classico, I can uh, 100% go to the wall on. It's it's difficult for me not to load our programs up with them just because they're um, such compelling wines and they're priced uh they're, they're frankly the price vis-a-vis the quality I think is, you know, you're seeing some of the top producers, you know, get up there with their Grand Reserve bottlings, but uh, what you can get for $20, $30 in that part of the world to me is just uh, unbelievably uh, great. Um, you know, Chablis is another region that is uh, very close to my heart. Um, uh, very uh, challenging re- region for viticulture. I mean, if, if you if your Instagram feed looks anything like mine, a few months back, you saw all the frost across all of France uh, and Chablis is just reliably battered by this problem every year now. And it's, it's just absolutely heartbreaking, uh, you know, for the, you know, for the farmers who are trying to make a living out of there. Uh, but also as a consumer of these wines, the you know, price just continues to escalate and is, you know, the ma- it doesn't pencil out for the growers either. You know, even if you, you know, take price increases every year, if you're losing major amounts of your crop, it's just so sad, uh, you know, from a business standpoint. And, and the, the wine quality coming out of there is uh, for, for the top producers is, uh, you know, for me, about as good as it gets. I mean, Ravino and Dovisa, like 
those those ships have sailed uh, long ago. But um, there's a lot of great producers in Chablis that I think are just absolutely thrilling. And um, yeah, I mean, white burgundy is you know when and where I can afford the great Cote de Bone wines. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to it's hard to uh, put into words like how profound those wines can be. Oh, you know what I had the other day that was uh, that I would implore uh, yourself and uh, your listeners to check out was uh, Stefan and Benedict Tiso uh, Le Bruyere Chardonnay. Um, okay. Uh, one of my uh, friends who owns Le Bouchon was like, "You should buy this bottle. It tastes like Grand Cru White Burgundy, but it's from the Jura, and it was one hundred and twenty dollars on the list." And I was like, "Okay," and the stuff was absolutely mind blowing. I immediately you know, got home, emailed the vendor and I was like, Hey, can I have some of this? He's like, it's all sold out. I was like, ah, okay. So now I need to go back to that restaurant and save up some money and drink another bottle. It's uh, yeah. One of the most exciting wines I've had in a very long time. I mean, Riesling too. I mean, super, uh, you know, super predictable sommelier response, but um, you know, Riesling, if you, you know, jump on, you know, some of these auction sites, you can find great bottles of Riesling with, you know, 15 years of age for next to no money. And, you know, I think it's another, uh, another part of the world, like German, German Riesling, you know, Klaus Peter Keller and Don Hoff and uh, some of the, you know, really top tier producers are uh, JJ Prume are very expensive, but there's a lot of great growers, small growers that, um, show up at auction and, you know, are, you know, 20, $30 and may have 20 years of age on them that are, um, pretty reliably bulletproof. So those are kind of my heavy rotation wines as of late. Very awesome. Yeah. I've been, uh, I've been trying to get back into Chianti cause I, I really don't sell much at the restaurant, which is so crazy because I, anticipated when when i was first putting my program together that we're gonna sell you know we're gonna sell only pinot grigio and we're gonna sell only chianti and now i don't really sell either one uh, <laughs> because i've because i've uh started to sell you know more obscure because i'm an all italian wine list uh at the restaurant and i've started to get people on to other things and i've kind of now not push people away from chianti but i've got people hooked on montepulciano di abruzzo and uh, red blends from Malange and, you know, like just all these, uh, more interesting wines, or at least maybe not more interesting, but just more obscure than most people are, are knowing about. Um, but I've, I've been tasting a lot of, um, uh, Chianti from Rufina and a oh, lot yeah. of, uh, Chianti Classico, uh, Grand Selezione, which I still think the Grand Selezione, even the higher end bottles, they're going to be what, maybe 60 or $70 retail. Mm-hmm. Um, but the quality that you get is just insane. You, I mean, just thinking about it, obviously it's a completely different style from, you know, Napa cabs or, you know, other uh, really high end expensive growing regions, but the quality that you're going to get for $70 is unmatched to anywhere else in the world for how complex and how interesting the wines are. Yeah, um, totally agree. And that's, that's why typically I drink a lot of old world Spanish and German and Italian um, wines, just because you can get that quality and the complexity and the earthiness that you can't find anywhere else for the, for, you know, super low prices. Yeah. Amen. 
even even the super Tuscan category. I mean, you know, again, there's you know the Ornalias and Sasakayas of the world, but there's a lot of great, you know, kind of like reasonably priced, you know, for the guest who is you know insistent on Bordeaux varieties, you can get something pretty rich and glossy and tricked out for for that guest who's looking for that Napa Cabernet experience uh, from Tuscany, and the wines are, uh, you know bit more ele- elegant and uh i think 100 percent scratch that itch we have a restaurant called chicho mio and it's an all italian wine list as well and it was a lot of fun to put together but also you know kind of challenging from a from a service training standpoint trying to kind of contextualize all of it so we you know have some descriptors that kind of guide the guest and you know uh kind of you know point them in the direction of you know what they what sort of vibe they may be looking for it's like a lot of fun though. And yeah, I mean, turning a guest on to something like Frappato or Norello Mascalese, it's, you know, such a diverse wine growing, uh, uh, country out there. It is. And I'm, I'm in the process of, uh, adding like another 50 or 60 bottles to my list. So it's going to be, uh, you know, even tougher on the staff, but I think when it's all done and the training's all done, having this list of like 110 bottles or so, is just going to be really fun and it, it'll kind of, you know, blanket a lot of what Italy has to offer. Obviously not everything because my list would be like a thousand bottles, but, um, you know, it, it's, it's definitely a, a, a fun time and fun building something like that. And, you know, just dollar for dollar, I think Italy just produces such great quality wines. Yeah. Like Barbera, uh, like Piedmont mm-hmm. Barbera. Like, well, and, and even Ornolaya, they produce, uh, it's called La Volte del Ornolaya, oh, yeah. and that's probably 30 or $35 retail. Um, it might even be cheaper than that. And, uh, you know, that's an excellent quality Super Tuscan. I think it's 50 Cab and 50 Merlot, um, if, if I remember correctly. But even, even for 30 bucks, you're getting a, an ex- extremely delicious bottle of wine. Yeah, giddy up. What's not the like? <laughs> exactly. So, uh, you know, I just, I really want to thank you for, you know, kind of taking the time to, to sit down with me and chat and get through the, uh, the difficulties we had early on trying to record today. Barely um, an inconvenience. Yeah. Not a problem at all. Um, so just before we go, is there anything else that you would like to share or anything that we can plug for you? Um, not really. I mean, check out the drink perfecter. Uh, you know, please come dine in our restaurants. I'm not generally on the floor, but um, hog salt restaurants are back open. Uh, we, we do um, half price wine at uh, Guilt Bar and Trivoli Tavern on, on Wednesdays. And there's some serious gems there and some some things that are, you know, pretty special. We just threw on some uh, some Ramonet and some, you know, great champagne that you can drink at 50% off on, on Wednesdays at those uh, establishments. Um, but yeah, that's about it. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jim. Um, it's been a pleasure and uh, I hope that we can get together and drink some, uh, some Chablis or some uh, Chianti Classico soon. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. You better drop a line when you come back to Chicago, we'll have a beverage. Sounds great. Thanks, Jim. Cheers. Take care, Adam. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Assemblage Wine Podcast. 
We really hope you enjoyed it, and we're busy creating brand new content, including podcasts, blogs, and other uh, really awesome things for you guys to enjoy. If you or if you know of someone that would be great for the podcast, uh, please have them contact us uh, via social media or via email. Um, and you know, we, we hope that we can continue to create really fantastic podcasts for you all. So cheers and have a great day.